0: The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office, sign up for a no-risk trial, and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code The Gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. <phone rings>
1: It's Monday, December 1st, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, for all the attention that we've given to Ferguson, I think it's really made us take our eye off the real issue. And that's pretty sad. The real issue, of course, being Gamergate. People die all the time in video games. You don't see the gamers whining. Actually, all they do is whine because they don't like their bad reviews. And when you get a bad review, death threats to female critics in 3, 2. So I noted on Twitter, that the Wikipedia entry for Gamergate is 17,000-plus words. For the Michael Brown shooting, it's 12,000 words. By the way, 12,000's a lot. Like, the McKinley assassination, 6,500 words. So I get it. It was 1901. It was in Buffalo. We've processed it. Well, how about this? Archduke Ferdinand assassination only got 8,000 words. So, yes, it was 100 years ago, but it did set off World War I. 37 million people did die. Still... Only two-thirds as much as the Michael Brown entry, and positively eclipsed, doubled by the Gamergate entry. I did some other word counts of the Wikipedia articles. Here we go. The Hundred Years' War, 7,000 words. Internet, the phrase internet on Wikipedia, 9,000 words. Human, 12.4 thousand words. Indonesia, it is a country of like 250 million people. 6.3 thousand words. Aristotle, 10,000 words. And... Recapping again, Gamergate, 17,000 words. Not that word counts count, but I do count the word counts in a never-ending quest to bring you up to date on the possibly specious statistics, not spurious but arguably specious statistics insofar as they purport to say something. But do they really? So in my spiel, I will be talking about Ferguson. I will be contributing some of my own words to it. And I'll be talking about which facts matter and which are probably matters of myth-making. I'll also be talking about one of the most important jazz musicians. Now picture Charles Mingus. Picture his Wikipedia page. You've got influences, impact, contemporaries, feline defecation. That is the section we will be concentrating on. But first, Billboard is making a major change to reflect the way people actually listen to music. Starting Wednesday... Your top ten singles will not be your grandfather's top ten single. No, I don't mean that Nicki Minaj was someone that would just give your grandfather a heart attack. But the album chart is now going to change. And they're going to incorporate the way people actually listen to music. Like streaming services, online services, not necessarily going to the stores and buying k I think the K-single is dead. Well, joining me now is Chris Malamphy, who writes about charts. He's the best guy on charts going. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you, Mike? I'm well. So... The change is
2: going to be on this one chart, the album charts. And what is the change in a nutshell? So what's changing on the Billboard 200 album chart is that for the first time, streaming music is going to count for the album chart. This is huge because for starters, uh, you know, up till now, the album chart throughout its roughly 60-year history has been based entirely on just pure sales. However, now on the album chart, they're actually going to count streams of songs. Now, they're going to use a ratio so that, like, if you listen to a song once, that's not going to count nearly as much as if you go to the store or, you know, go to iTunes and buy a full album. In fact, it's going to be a 1,500 to one ratio. So for every 1,500 streams of a song, that's going to count as much as a single sale of an album.
1: So playing a song 1,500 times is the same as the $10 you spent on a CD?
2: Pretty much. In fact, I made a joke when I was talking to Silvio Pietrolungo, who runs the charts over at Billboard last week. And I say, so are you telling me that if some guy plays, you know, Jealous by Nick Jonas 1,500 times, that counts as much as buying the Nick Jonas album? And he paused for a second and said, well, I, I think that might be painful. But yes, that would count just as much.
1: <laughs> so that's great in terms of, that seems to be a decent enough calculation in terms of sales. But in terms of actual experience, if you buy an album, no one listens to an album 1,500 times, even if you love the album. That's even true. a teenage girl. Because even if she goes and listens to it every day for a month... She her taste is going to change next month and she'll be on to, you know, Nikki instead of Tyler or whatever. Right. This gets to the question, who are the charts for? Are the charts for the industry to take a monetary accounting of itself or the charts for sort of the harder-to-touch concept of, you know, artistic penetration, how big the song was?
2: That, that's, those are good questions. I mean, first of all, the chart is primarily for the record industry, but the experience, you're absolutely right, is very different. I mean, the the big concept that people have to wrap their minds around in this this new formula is that the album chart is now no longer going to measure the moment of purchase. It's actually going to measure album consumption, that's the word I would use, over a longer term, right? Because think about when you used to go into a record store and buy a CD. There's no guarantee when you walked out of there with that CD that you would actually play the thing or that you'd play it more than once or that you'd play it, you know, a hundred times. So... It's kind of like the album chart is now going to measure two things. It's going to measure the moment of purchase, which is one proxy of popularity. And then it's going to measure ongoing consumption, which is interesting because it means that it's going to rewire our concept of like what a hit album is.
1: Yeah, because uh, as you describe it, if people buy one song off an album and that's the only song they buy, right? That would never have been a successful album. You just would buy those singles. Now, ten singles equals an album. That's so right. So if all anyone is buying is one or two songs, it does give I think the false impression that that's
2: a successful album. The, the, I made this very argument when I was talking to Billboard last week, and, and the the argument that they made to me, which was fair, is there's a long history over the last you know fifty years of the album chart of people acquiring an. Album album, buying a CD to get one song. Uh, the hilarious example that uh, the Billboard guy made to me is, you know, remember Chumbawamba. He said, think about that album sold three million copies. It went triple platinum in America. And I guarantee you 90 percent of the people who were buying that thing were buying it for one song. Um, no, nothing against Chumbawamba, but I think that's a pretty safe bet. Right. So it's not as if we haven't had albums that have been driven by one single before. Wait, when
1: Chumbawamba came out, was the just buy the single alone option as viable as it is now? That,
2: that's a whole sidebar Conversation. The 90s was a crazy time sure, because they
1: tricked you into buying the tr- whole album. Yeah, the
2: 90s <laughs> was a terrible time because that was the period where they were trying to kill the single as a retail medium. This yeah. is before Napster, before iTunes, where it, you know you, we all remember. If, if you lived through the 90s, you remember having to. If you wanted to own Mambo Number no. Five, you had to buy the whole Lubega CD. Yeah, which one, was insane.
1: Mambo Seven, Mambo Twelve, of course, Mambo Number no. Nine, Number no. Nine. Even, hard even, to get into.
2: Even if you go back to the 60s and 70s, there are plenty of examples of hit albums that were largely driven by one or two hit singles. So yeah. It's not as if that's a new phenomenon. Part of what's been weird about the charts for the last 23 years during what's called the sound scan era, that's mm-hmm. when Billboard added sound scan data to the charts and made them far more accurate so we knew what was actually selling at the cash register, is that we realized that albums are really more like movies. They don't grow to the number one spot. They don't rise on the chart. They start at the top. Okay, so when we say number one song, I guess this is mostly about singles but
1: a number one album, we mean a thing that was important that was you know maybe heard by a lot of people is that getting more and more true is the idea of what a number one album should be closer to what we think it is and more
2: accurate because of changes like this i mean two thoughts one as you said right at the top of this segment this now accords with reality. The yeah. fact is fewer people are buying traditional albums, more people are streaming. The chart had to change to acknowledge that if you're going to have an album chart at all. But number two, I think that the way the record industry thinks of an album nowadays, and I would argue that probably a younger generation also thinks this, is that an album is kind of like, I don't know, it's a project. You know what I mean? When, when Katy Perry releases Prism, it's not so much an album as an amalgamation of stuff. Yeah. And for the next roughly 18 months, they're going to promote this this collection of stuff we're calling Prism. Maybe we'll add bonus tracks to it. I mean, you know, Nicki Minaj has had hits that have actually been bonus tracks on her album. Her, her her first big hit, Super Bass, was not even on the original version of the album. It was a bonus track. But we all called that first album Pink Friday. And for a year, there was a project called Pink Friday. That's kind of what albums are now. They're bundles. They're projects. This new album chart is going to basically just accord with that reality.
1: Was there any kind of album or genre of music or specific artist that in the past benefited from the old rules that we're going to see like the next time their album comes out it's going to be like why I thought these guys were popular
2: right one um group of people that billboard admitted to me straight away is probably going to get hurt a little bit by this new methodology is veteran artists because think about it what's going to boost you a little bit on the charts now is going to be if you have a current single if you have a bunch of singles let's say you're three singles into a project and your album has spun off multiple singles you're ariana grande that's going to help you If you're Bette Midler, on the other hand, who just dropped an album two weeks ago and it debuted at number three on the album chart, you're not going to see that album suddenly be ranked at number 40, but it is going to be a couple positions lower. I I mentioned Bette Midler in particular because uh, Silvio at Billboard said to me, "Okay, if the new rules had been in effect on the chart from a couple of weeks ago, this Bette Midler album that debuted at number three would actually have debuted at number six. Not terrible. It's still a top 10 record. But yeah, you know, the Divine Miss M, who doesn't have like a current hit on the radio is instead going to get her biggest chart pop from that first week when, you know, her diehard fans, and goodness knows she has them, all show up to buy her album. And then it's probably going to fade. To be fair, it's going to fade anyway, because that's the way most albums are, whether you're a veteran artist or, you know, a current young artist, unless you're Taylor Swift, who seems to defy all gravity, mm-hmm. most artists, their biggest week is their first week. It's the new artist
1: that may be able to say, oh, look who debuted at number two, never heard of them before. Exactly.
2: If we're talking all about
1: Spotify and the new rules, Spotify... Taylor Swift's declared war on Spotify. I'm sure a lot of other artists would like
2: to. What happens to them? Um, Billboard announced the same time they were announcing the new methodology just because they knew everybody was going to ask this question because Taylor's album sales are so staggeringly large. No lack of Spotify streaming is going to hurt her at all. She has had the number one album in America for the last three weeks. She would have had the number one album in America. And by the way, they told me they've been testing this chart, you know, secretly uh, for about a year now and according to them the number one album most weeks was under no danger of being different oh, the night away.
1: The night away. he takes a whiskey
0: drink whiskey it's a-
1: Well, we've been talking about one thing, but really, I feel like Chris Malamfy brought us a whiskey drink, he brought us a lager drink, he brought us a vodka drink, just the whole tub-thumping cornucopia. Thank you, Chris.
2: You got it, Mike.
1: With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office, the traffic, the parking, the smell of your fellow holiday shoppers. Use stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the best way to get your mailing and shipping done right from your desk. It's not complicated. It's easy. Do you have a computer? Do you have a printer? Do you have access to one? It's all you need to buy and print official U.S. postage. Print postage for any letter, anytime, and the mailman picks it up. I call them the postal carrier because I have respect for them. Just click, print, and mail. That's all you have to do. Especially during the holidays. Try stamps.com today. We have a no risk trial offer. Use the promo code the GIST and qualify for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter the GIST and ho, ho, hold forth on the glories of convenient stamping and shipping. Charles Mingus was the angry man of jazz. He refused to compromise. He blew up at rivals, executives, anyone who challenged his vision. He played the double bass and redefined the jazz sound forever. That is not why we are talking about Charles Mingus. We are talking about Charles Mingus for this reason. He taught cats to poop on a toilet. What kind of cats? Hep cats? Downtown cats? Those crazy cats with their syncopated beats? No, four-legged cats, furried, whiskered, to poop on the toilet. In fact, he offered to train your cat. Jody Avrigan reported the story for the public radio show Studio three sixty. He's here to flesh it out. Thank you, Jody. <laughs>
0: Why did you say flesh it out with such <laughs> meaning, flush it out, flesh <laughs> it, it, out. it out I see how'd you find out about the Mingus cat poop connection? I have a cat that poops in the toilet. uh, my cat was not trained with the mingus method, uh-huh, but you know, I kind of was Googling around one day because I was like, I wonder how many other cats know how to do this. His previous owners had trained him, and he just arrived to us. Wow, pre-toilet training cat. pretty awesome. That's pretty good. Uh, And... I was Googling around and and I found actually the official Charles Mingus website. Yeah. And if you go to the official Charles Mingus website, it's like music, discography, biography, photos, cat toilet training. Method. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of the parts of the site. So I started looking at it and it is this remarkable document that, you know, from time to time people discover it. But really, it's kind of lost to history. Yeah. But it's. I think it's almost a thousand words long. It's four steps, but each step has just, uh, you know, dozens of caveats. If this, do this, then this. My cat did this. You may want to try this. I mean, it is incredibly detailed. Yep. But I think that there's a story there because, as you mentioned, Charles Mingus it was a really sort of wild personality. And how did, what's the connection between his personality and this cat training? Well, method? did he love cats? Was he kind to cats? Did he have a soft spot for cats? I mean, there's an element of mania in this in this catalog, which <laughs> is what he called it. Yeah. The catalog. But there's also a real tender side. There's occasional moments where he sort of slips into first person and says, my cat Nightlife did this. And you can really tell that he and had affection for these cats: He loved the nightlife.
1: Um, so you talked to some other experts who also know how to train cats, and his method is certainly plausible if a little rigid maybe it's not what now would be the cutting edge
0: of toilet training your cat <laughs> So uh, his method is very homespun. He uses cardboard boxes, he tells you to not use kitty litter. he tells you to use torn- up newspaper. Mm-hmm. Your, your cat takes a dump in this box and then you slowly move it towards the bathroom and then eventually you move it up onto to the toilet. Then you cut a hole in the box yeah. and your cat sort of learns to go through that hole. Then you get the hole bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually you take the box away and your cat's just sort of comfortable being on the toilet. His method... There was, has, it has to be a big enough cat. You don't like lay anything on the toilet. I'm worried about the cat falling in. Well, Mingus addresses the balance issue and okay. says that's one of the reasons you have to do it really gradually is because they have to get their balance. And there's a picture of, of nightlife leaning backwards over a toilet, and it, it does look a little precarious, but I can attest my cat Archie does it, and, you know, he, he's got his balance right. So, the, the Mingus method was and very... Describe, if you will, the expression on Nightlife's face when he's doing this. <laughs> well, in the piece, I say that when you look at this picture of Nightlife, you know, he's got this sort of regal pose, and he's got this look on his face that can only be described as the kind of look a cat would have when shitting into Charles Mingus's toilet. <laughs> it really... <laughs>
1: can um, only be described that way. But,
0: it is a singular look. But your question about the method, it was done sort of in this rickety manner is the way that he prescribes it in this catalog. But there is this modern method called City Kitty, which is this kit that you can buy. I think my cat was trained using City Kitty. Mm-hmm. And it's this series of plastic rings that you put over your toilet that get bigger and bigger and bigger. But it's the same sort of method as Mingus so he was like really tapping into some elemental cat psychology here about doing it very gradually and getting him
1: comfortable whereas there might be more than one way to skin a cat when you're teaching it to poop on the toilet there's really only one way I think we decided um what does it say about Charles Mingus's personality
0: Mm -hmm. I mean he really lost it by the end It is a sort of specious question when you start to ask it. But from what I could tell from the Mingus biographers, they really did think that the period in his life when he wrote this was a particularly stable period. And, you know, the ability to sit down and go step by step and write this thing out shows a bit of like, yes, a little bit of mania, but also definitely being with it. And apparently, you know, in 1954, around when he wrote this, he had just started a record label debut. He had a marriage that was by all counts, stable at that point. So this was kind of a productive moment in his life. And you can point at this catalog and say it was a sign that he kind of had it together. And he thought he was going to make money off of this, too. You could send a self-addressed stand envelope and a couple bucks to a P.O. box at Cooper Square. And he would send you back a catalog. He would apparently try and sell it to people after gigs, which is my favorite thing. Like, imagine you're at a club. Yeah. You go up, you talk to Mingus, Craziest and somehow... Craziest merch table item <laughs> exactly. ever. Okay, couple questions. Did anyone buy it? I don't know. I mean, there's no records. Is there anyone out whether... there who says, I actually have one? I'm sure you looked for that, right? Yes. And as far as I can tell, there aren't any. I mean, it lives online, so people find it from time to time. But in this piece, I... Committed to trying to train a cat using the authentic Mingus method. So I found a kitten, was a friend of a friend of a friend, and they were willing to go. And this cat's name, as it happens, was Dizzy, named mm-hmm. after Dizzy Gillespie. Who and they, played with Mingus? Yeah, they were yeah. apparently choosing between Dizzy and Mingus. I know, as names I know, cats play. and dogs. Cats, I know, cats named Mingus. I think it's a pretty popular yeah. name. Yeah. So I tried to extract from them a promise that if they got this cat to shit in the toilet, they would rename it. Mingus. I was not able to extract that promise. But so I met Dizzy. We took Dizzy and Kevin and, and Nicole, his owners, gave it a real shot. Uh, and they used the authentic method. They used a laptop box, which felt a little anachronistic, mm-hmm. but oh, yeah. still a cardboard box right. and torn up newspaper. They had this whole bungee cord situation going over their, uh, right. over their toilet and... um I don't know. Am I allowed to spoil the ending? Yeah, I think so. Okay, it didn't work. Didn't work. Yeah. But then they used City Kitty and it did? No, but they're trying City Kitty okay. now. Uh, and Kevin, bless his heart, really felt like a sellout going to City Kitty. Yeah. But uh, it's a really wonderful thing to have a cat yeah. that, that I mean, if you're going to use City Kitty, might as well name your cat Nickelback or Adam Levine, right? <laughs> That's how uncool you are. I would say, from what I can tell, even with City Kitty, which is, you know, they've got it down, there's maybe a... Th- 50%, 60% success rate. Some mm-hmm. cats just aren't, Just it's just not going to happen. Uh, I think one of the big mistakes people make, and Mingus, this is one of his very clear points, is that you have to do it really gradually. I think a lot of people, once they get a little taste of, oh my God, this is going to work, this is going to work, they rush it and they you know push the, push the box closer to the toilet yeah. or they go through those rings. It's going to be like two, three months of this yeah. very slow process. There's some sort of jazz
1: aesthetic or lesson there like you gotta let it come to you you can't push it too hard you know it's, this is everything with a cat like the, if you ever show enthusiasm right. around the cat you're lost well everything has to be the cat's decision
0: yeah and apparently Mingus as a band leader was very much the same way like you know Obviously, he was improvising a lot, but he would like jump in and annotate people's breath control and annotate their playing style in this really sort of step by step, very hands on method, which, you know, it's that same mania that you get when you read the uh, catalog. You know, it feels like, man, this guy is, is getting in there.
1: Jody Avergan reported on the
0: Charles Mingus
1: catalog. He also hosts a live show and podcast called Ask Roulette, which I've done and is extremely awesome. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Mike. And now, the spiel. Galvanizing anecdotes. On Sunday, members of the St. Louis Browns football team made a hands-up gesture in their pregame entry as a nod to the killing of Michael Brown and a show of support for his family. ESPN, after the game, had a headline, Rams players salute Ferguson. Here's to you, Ferguson. That wasn't really it. CBS Sports and their game coverage didn't exactly dwell on the gestures of the fives ramp. CBS, in their game coverage didn't exactly dwell on the gestures, but they did mention it this way.
2: Moments ago, as the Rams came out of the tunnel, Tabon Austin and Kenny Britt acknowledged the events in Ferguson. And then they were joined by the rest of the receiving corps.
1: as they ran out onto the field. There is extra security here today, about 50 extra officers outside the Edward Jones dome and some plain
2: officers down on the field.
1: In response to these Rams players putting up their hands, a group called the St. Louis Police Officers Association condemned the players. The SLPOA is essentially the patrolman's unit. Its business manager is Jeff Rorda. He's a former cop. He's a member of the State House of Representatives in Missouri. A week ago, Rorda was interviewed about banning retail sales around Thanksgiving on KMOX. More recently, he's been identified on CNN as a friend of Officer Darren Wilson. Rorda calls the Rams hypocrite because, quote, all week long, the Rams and the NFL were on the phone with St. Louis Police Department asking for assurances that the players and the fans will be kept safe from the violent protesters. So how dare you criticize police killings while at the same time asking the police to prevent your being killed? It's really one way or the other. You got to pick one. I often think, I really do think about the police who, they're definitely in harm's way, have to make sure the protesters have their rights protected, but they also have to protect the property or the businesses that people have put their whole lives into, and I feel for the cops. It's a tough balancing act. And then I hear Jeff Rorta offering the old, what do you want, constitutional rights and safety argument, and I don't sympathize that much. Rorto went on to call the players' protest, quote, out of bounds, because that's a football term. He said someone, quote, needs to throw a yellow flag on the players, because that, too, is a football term. But I say Mr. Reuter is guilty of encroachment upon good sense. His premise is a false start, huh? Huh, Reuter? See how i do it? And then there was this part of his statement. I'd remind the NFL and their players that it is not the violent thugs burning down buildings that buy their advertisers' products. It's cops and the good people of St. Louis and other NFL towns that do. That was near the end of the rant, so... Call me for running into the kicker, but terrible point. Everyone in America likes football. Yes, even the violent protesters. Upon further review, that was just an attempt at a rich versus poor, black versus white veiled argument. But you know what I did there in that whole thing? I argued against the low-hanging fruit of a rhetorical thug. Because with Ferguson, as with so much in America, there seem to be two truths. One is that Officer Wilson was not indicted, the process was legal, and that Michael Brown is not the perfect victim, as if a perfect victim isn't mythological. Another truth is that there really is a real problem with cops shooting unarmed men. I think... To me, lots of evidence suggests that the problem has a racial dimension. I can't say for sure, because the Justice Department is unwilling or unable to compile reliable stats on police killings, as I may have mentioned dozens of times on this show in the past. So in the face of the lack of empirical evidence, we rely on the anecdotal. And the anecdote in this case, the galvanizing example, was of an unarmed man, true, gunned down, true, with his arms raised, probably raised to some degree, saying, don't shoot, probably not true. I've read through hundreds of pages of witness testimony, and there are credible witnesses who say Michael Brown charged Officer Wilson. There are credible witnesses who say he didn't. But the phrase don't shoot only comes up five times in the transcripts of the dozens and dozens of witnesses. Two times flat out assertions that he said don't shoot, but neither of those assertions were by people closest to Michael Brown at the time of his death. Two were people reporting on the crowd that gathered afterward and what people were telling each other, and one was this utterance by the assistant district attorney. Did you hear anybody else yell or anybody else say anything? Answer no. Didn't ever hear Mike Brown say don't shoot? Answer no. Or nothing like that? Answer no. PBS has a helpful chart of which witnesses saw what Witnesses were mixed on if Michael Brown charged. Almost all the witnesses said he raised his hands to some degree. The chart did not look into don't shoot, the galvanizing trope that was repeated after the shooting was first reported. Does it matter? It shouldn't. A bad shooting's a bad shooting, even if the victim's last words weren't as if they were crafted by a screenwriter or an activist hoping to maximize outrage. But of course they matter. In lighting a fire and capturing attention and amassing a cause, the NAACP carefully shopped for the most sympathetic figure to get arrested in Montgomery and were happy to land on Rosa Parks. Nathan Hale probably never uttered his words about having one life to give to his country. Wars have been waged and nations frequently founded upon words unsaid and images manipulated when iraqis tore down that statue of saddam hussein it was portrayed as an outpouring of popular rage and it was but the actual statue was toppled via a u.s rope tied to a u.s winch attached to a u.s tank wielded by u.s soldiers that's not how fox portrayed the toppling
2: it's hard to and keep people the people away. Uh, Chris people Jumbelt, are throwing rocks it, yeah, it, and, and the pieces of metal, wood, whatever, their shoes. The they're, they're People <laughs> are throwing whatever they can find. They're throwing it at this statue now from underneath. The, the throwing
1: of the shoes. Chris Yumbelt, you can jump in here. You know more about uh, Arabic culture than I do. But there's a certain symbolism in throwing. There he goes. I hope they're watching this all over the Arab street. Oh, and I could fill you in on the subtleties of throwing a shoe at someone. It means you don't like them. Then again, I do have an advanced degree in anthropology with a concentration in the telemetry of Adidas. Does it matter who pulled down the statue? Do we need a perfectly unsullied expression of popular sentiment? Most liberals would say, yeah, that matters. Facts matter. The truth matters. And yet, I'd argue... It shouldn't matter that Michael Brown probably didn't say don't shoot. We needn't have someone literally say don't shoot to conclude that the person shouldn't be shot. And yet, while I'm loath to criticize the phrases of people protesting this correct cause because a political protest isn't an op-ed, there's no fine line editing, I do think that including the phrase in your protest while galvanizing demonstrators also animates critics. This is not the case with the other phrase that has attached itself to the Ferguson protests, an argument for which there is no facile counter-argument. Black lives matter. (laughs) That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has got her Harilka drink. She's got her sherry drink. Just intern Claire Tennesketter has got something of a soju drink. She's got a fribble drink. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, has a brandy drink and a Slurpee drink. Andy Bauer is executive producer of Slate Podcast, got a drink and his Monster Energy drink. You can subscribe at iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We're on Yo. Sign up for that app and then sign up for a podcast and we'll tell you when the show's up. We're on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. It is on Facebook.com slash SlateGist that I will post the version of Tub Thumping that we played. Though Tub Thumping was originally written and performed by Chumbawamba, we featured They Might Be Giants doing the song. I love those guys. We should have them on more regularly. Email us at thegist at slate.com. I got my Nestle drink. I got my Fago drink. I got my bourbon drink. I got my Red Bull drink. I mix it all inside a blender go on a week-long rabid Kentucky clown bender. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Mike Volo, host of Slate's language podcast, Lexicon Valley. On this week's episode, what does it mean to sound gay? We put that question to Benjamin Munson. He's a speech scientist at the University of Minnesota. Search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store or visit iTunes slash Slate Podcasts. Oh, oh,